1: Hello, and welcome to a special joint episode of New Books in Middle East Studies and in Anthropology. I'm Nancy Ko. And I'm Bhumika Joshi. And today we have the great privilege of speaking with Dr. Daryl Lee, who is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Social Sciences and a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago. And he is author of the brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire, and the Challenge of Solidarity. Hi, Daryl.
2: Hi, Nancy. Hi, Boomika. It's really nice uh, to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: And thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, so I just wanted to start off with um, a tweet that you made uh, in December. I guess this was before the book was formally published. Um, you said that this was kind of a weirdo book that won't be everyone's cup of tea, and for many will be in a way impossible to understand. So just to start with the title, The Universal Enemy, can you tell us a little bit about Who is the universal enemy and what is it about the way that you are talking about and conceptualizing universalism um, that departs from the way that we might come to this book um, to understand? it?
2: Great. Thanks so much for your question. So for those who may not be familiar with the topic of the book, it's a long term ethnographic and archival study of uh, transnational uh, so-called jihadist foreign fighters. Um, I'm specifically looking at Arabs and other Muslims who traveled to Bosnia-Herzegovina during the war in the 1990s and participated in the armed conflict there, um, under sort of denominating their their participation as one of jihad. So, um, as you both know, this is a topic that has, um, you know, uh, elicited an enormous amount of discourse. There is an inn- innumerable number of books about, you know, jihad, jihadism, uh, al Qaeda, ISIS, other such groups. So I guess what I was trying to get at in that tweet is, um, you know, it's it's a weirdo book. I mean, it's it's written by a weirdo. There's that, but also <laughs> in, in that, um, you know, there uh, most of this uh, discourse is really about. Uh, trying to speak to kind of an imagined audience of, um, of frankly, the the liberal national security state and about providing um, solutions or or better courses of action uh, to this state in the conduct of the war on terror. And it's about calibrating the violence of the national security state in perhaps more precise or less precise ways. So... Uh, There is one version of it, which is sort of about uh, demonizing Muslims as potential terrorists and potential security threats. And then there's a sort of more liberal version, which pushes back against that, but in ways that I think are uh, frankly not enough in terms of um, thinking of real alternatives. So the the sort of liberal pushback on the national security state is really to reassure liberal audiences that, you know, Muslims are not terrorists. Muslims are, are good people, too. And while that's all absolutely correct. Um, that discourse has largely failed to to provide a meaningful and rich account of what uh, transnational groups that uh, participate in violence and that understand it as jihad, uh, it fails to provide an account of what those folks are up to. And um, so one of the things that makes this book very different, um, in addition to Uh, the types of research and the amount of time I've spent with these people and languages that are involved is that uh, this is not a book that's trying to help win the war on terror. It's not about providing advice to the national security state. And it's not about reassuring people that they shouldn't be. It's not about cajoling people into not being racist against Muslims. Um, Those are um, goals that, you know, I think we can have debates about. I don't dismiss them entirely out of hand. It's just that there are far too many books that are um, aimed at those goals and I wanted to do something different. Um, so to get to your uh, more specific question, the title, the universal enemy uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, there's a little bit of a double meaning. Um, so on the one hand, um, I use this phrase universal enemy to capture the way that so many different groups of people sort of agree that um Muslims who travel to other countries, not mobilized by a state, and participate in violence, and understand that violence to be religiously grounded or religiously denominated as jihad, um, that these people represent a particular kind of security threat, and that they are not only um, uh, sort of pushing against... Good law and order in the international legal system, but that they reject uh, secularism, they reject rationality, they reject the west, that they reject the very idea of universalism itself um so and it and you know that has to do with just sort of uh basic assumptions about what uh makes violence legitimate what makes political violence legitimate right so there's kind of a default assumption that a lot of folks are working with that uh, state violence is um is presumptively legitimate and non state violence is sort of possibly legitimate in some situations, um, but that non-state violence while crossing borders as part of a broader solidarity formation, that is the sort of thing that if it's done um, in religious terms, it, uh, makes a much, much broader swath of people um, on the right and on the left very uncomfortable. Um, so that's sort of uh, this idea of a universal enemy. What it does not mean is that uh, I'm not saying that the folks I'm writing about um, actually, have a kind of hostility towards everyone who's not like them. Um, so, the irony in the title is that when I talk about the universal enemy, um, for me, that idea requires someone to have the authority to declare a certain group of people to be enemies on behalf of all mankind. Um, so, and in order to do that, it requires exercising a certain kind of power and being able to set terms for what kinds of universalism we think of as as normal and natural and default, right? So um, in this case here, obviously, we're talking about the United States of America, which um, naturally stands in for universal ideas of freedom, democracy, liberalism, and human rights. And if the United States of America says that a particular group is not only um, a group that it has a conflict with, but that rather it's fighting this group or this type of group on behalf of all humanity, that uh, there's a lot of assumptions that are baked in that kind of move, right? Um, So there's a difference between declaring someone your own enemy and declaring someone an enemy on behalf of uh, the rest of humanity. Um, So the book is really about kind of using this group of people, these transnational jihad fighters, to interrogate what we actually mean by universalism at all and to come up with different ways of thinking about universalism ethnographically and historically.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you, Daryl. I think to highlight uh, the... Uh, one of the profound points you're making here and one that you make in the book, you say at one point that this logic of universalism, it always plays out no matter who is playing it out in situations of unequal power relations. Right. And that there's a tension between universalism as a cover for power, right, as a, as a way to legitimize certain uses of power uh, versus universalism as a constraint or at least an attempt on uh, constraining power. So can you talk a little bit more about when, you know, if and when universalism is used as, uh, an attempted constraint on power, what is part of that aspiration, right? What, it, what is, what is in a way the sort of aspirational geography of, of jihad as you saw it in your subjects?
2: Um, thanks so much for asking that. This actually, uh, raises a point that, um, that I forgot to mention earlier, and that's pretty important for the argument. Um, I think um, a lot of the readers of this book are probably going to be familiar with a certain critique of universalism, right? So we're accustomed to seeing, um, you know, empires or uh, different regimes invoke universalist norms and we're used to the idea that this is, you know, as you mentioned, essentially a pretext for doing all sorts of things, right? That there's a kind of hypocrisy Um, that's involved in evoking universalism. And I think that type of critique is uh, one that's very important and that I'm entirely sympathetic to. Um, It's just that this book is trying to do something different. Um, So instead of um, going up against the dominant forms of universalism that we might be more familiar with, like liberalism or capitalism, and sort of uh, knocking them down and exposing their hypocrisies, the approach of this book is really to think about universalism as a thing that people in the world are actually doing and looking at situations where um, universalism is being invoked by uh, not the usual suspects, right? Not powerful states. So in this case, we're talking about activists who are uh, decentralized people in different parts of the world who felt the need to participate in the war in Bosnia on behalf of uh, Muslims who are facing mass atrocities, ethnic cleansing there. Um, and doing so as a critique of the dominant forms of universalism as embodied in the international community, right? So for those who may not be familiar, uh, the Bosnia crisis was really sort of the dominant uh, story in uh, headlines of the in the 1990s uh, and the early days of the post-Cold War era. And uh, there was widespread critique of the United Nations, of NATO, of the European Union, and the international community for failing to stop these atrocities. So the folks that I'm writing about were essentially attempting to provide an alternative to uh, this sort of failing international order in, in providing armed assistance um, to, uh, to folks in Bosnia. Um, I'm sorry, that wasn't a direct answer to your question. So I think you, you might have to ask me again just to remind me.
0: Now, thank you Daryl. Uh, um you know the so the way you're talking about universalism, and I'm going to take on from the way you responded to Nancy's previous question uh about what universalism comes to stand for the kinds of aspirational geographies and activities and as a as a as a product of ethnographic history, this book is um is so interesting and so illuminating and so charming actually because uh, it relies on various accounts, uh, various accounts of memory, various accounts of kin making, uh, as a project of universalism almost. And I wanted you to speak to that question a little bit more. How much of this idea of universalism that you are um, sort of documenting uh, in the book? you almost—it's something that you are. Um, as a category you are coming up with to describe these various very tangible products of moving, of aspiring, of resisting, of transforming, and the role of making kin, the role of the diaspora and family-making relationships in all of these movements is something that struck me as an anthropologist again and again throughout the text, throughout the various chapters. And I was wondering if you could speak to that to help our audience understand the ways in which the ethnography of this universalism universalism translated for you, while doing these various sort of, you know, transcontinental hops. Yeah,
2: Yeah. thanks for, yes, yes, no, I'm here. Thank you for that. Um, So um, I think the way i would respond to, to that and also to nancy's question uh, but nancy please let me know if i'm misunderstanding your question uh, because you both invoked this phrase um aspirational geography mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so for the folks that i'm writing about um they are uh they're speaking and acting in the name of uh of umma right mm-hmm. and and for them uh umma sort of has two connotations one is it is the uh, sort of community of Muslims worldwide, you know, um, about one fifth of humanity. Um, but it also represents um, an aspirational horizon for all of humanity, potentially, right? So there's an idea that Islam has a message for all of mankind, and that there is at least the theoretical possibility of of the rest of humanity sort of one day entering this horizon of conversion, right? So this is what um, this is what enables them to, to think of the ummah as this sort of um, aspirational category, and which is why um, simply picking up any invocation of the ummah and sort of reading it through a kind of Samuel Huntington the clash of civilization lens is, is something that's problematic, to say the least. right? Um, so these are folks, for example, who repeatedly emphasize the fact that uh, although they are in Bosnia with Bosnian Muslims or Bosniaks fighting against Serb and Croat forces that, uh, you know, they make claims, for example, that there are Serbs and Croats who have who have converted and who have joined their cause, right? So it enables them to make these kinds of claims to be um, potentially reaching out to everyone. Now, of course, those claims, you know, in fact, can be challenged, can be exposed as uh, a self-serving, as hypocritical, as untrue and so on. And I don't, Necessarily dispute that, right? But that's also true of pretty much every other universalist project we can think of, right? Um, so the point for me is that, you know, it's not about whether or not universalist claims are actually carried out, you know, 100% of the time or 90% or 80%, right? It's about asking why certain kinds of universalist claims can be debunked in specific cases but still retain a kind of um, normative force and why others are dismissed entirely. Um, so uh, part of how this plays out is that um, typically in in a lot of the kind of uh, media discourse and even some of the the scholarship on transnational jihad groups, there's kind of this assumption that well, I mean, there's basically a trap. On the one hand, you know, there's the tendency to say, okay, these are all Muslims, and you know, worldwide we can put them together under under a rubric of threat. Um, so that's obviously one one way of thinking about these things. But the other, and actually more common way of thinking is to say, no, of course, there's, you know, Muslims are diverse, they, you know, they come in different nationalities, different races, and so on. Um, and all that's actually true, of course. But then one of the takeaways from that is to say, oh, look, these fighters who show up, um, so Arabs, for example, who come to Bosnia, um, they don't know anything about Bosnia. You know, they they are traveling to a place that they could barely pick out of a geography textbook. Right? They're foreign to the local population. They don't speak the language. They're racially distinct. They practice a different version of Islam, which is allegedly um, stricter and more fundamentalist. And uh, so there's a tendency there to actually um, reify various differences and to, and to uh, in the service of essentially painting these people as, as groundless fanatics. Right? So just as we must beware of racist discourses that try to collapse all Muslims together, The book is also trying to push back against this idea that uh, these Arabs and others who came to Bosnia can only be seen as totally crazy interlopers, right? who had no business being there and who had no ability to connect with the population. And that's why, as you point out, the book is uh, spent so much time looking at how it is that these folks actually made pan-Islamism work in practice how they developed ties with local Bosnian Muslims um, and, you know, tried to learn language, tried to learn customs, tried to interact with them, oftentimes creating a lot of tension, oftentimes making people angry, right? So I'm not saying that it was a successful project by any stretch of the imagination, but all of the the technologies and the day-to-day grittiness of how do you translate a set of ideals that are directed at all of humanity in the face of lived cultural, racial, doctrinal, and national difference is something that I think has been widely overlooked in talking about transnational jihad and is also interesting on its own terms because it also helps us look at other projects, right? So structurally speaking, um, the UN peacekeepers who are in Bosnia are also coming from dozens of different countries also trying to translate a certain set of ideas um, for the Bosnian sort of local population, and you know, oftentimes messing it up and, uh, and and dealing with different challenges in its way.
1: Great, Daryl, thank you. I just wanted to bring out two of the things, um, two of the things that you've said. I mean, the first one is, in a way, what you're trying to say is we've kind of got it wrong this whole time. What's What's interesting, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting, but what's interesting about jihad and about universalisms more generally, you know, whether that be American humanitarianism or human rights discourse, is not whether they're correct or incorrect, is not whether they should be heralded or dismissed, but rather how they're actually used in practice, um, how people how people use these kinds of universalisms as a, as a practice to achieve certain ends. And to that end, I mean, as you mentioned, um, we have this sort of well, um, you you refer to in the introduction to your book as a seemingly strange image of of Arabs in Bosnia, one that doesn't really comport um, with the public's view of of Bosnia as white, but on the margins of white and of, of Arabs as as darker skinned, right? And you mention um, that your book draws on, and we should mention we should emphasize this to our audience as well. Um, Fifteen years of research um, in several languages: in Arabic, Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, in Urdu, in French, in Italian, um, and and you've you've gone to uh, conduct interviews and do archival research in a number of countries: in Bosnia, in Egypt, Kuwait, uh, in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, etc. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how people come to be become what we regard as jihadists. Um, and how they come to this sort of universalism as a practice. Um, You mentioned um, a certain number of characters come to mind, Taufik and Fadil, first of all, who didn't necessarily come to Yugoslavia with jihad in mind, but then found themselves um, in this kind of practice eventually. So could you speak a little bit more about that, about the people and the sort of texture of that practice?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, So... Uh, Part of what the book is doing is trying to push against um, a sort of methodological nationalism, right? And the book is not unique in that sense. I think that's something that a lot of scholars working, um, especially in the Middle East, um, have been trying to do. Um, But the specific way that this plays out for me is um, this category of uh, the foreign fighter, right? And this term um, entered into widespread use during the early years of the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Um, and where the military, the U.S. military was basically saying, look, there are Iraqis who are fighting us and we don't like that, but we can sort of understand why, because we invaded their country and disbanded their state. Um, but, you know, we can potentially co-opt them through kind of, you know, old school hearts and minds type strategies. Um, so those are the Iraqis. On the other hand, there are these other people. Um, who have come to join the Iraqi insurgency. Those are the foreign fighters and those people, they're much more hardcore, right? So we're not trying to win them over. They just need to be eliminated. Um, They are the real target in the war on terror. Uh, They're part of Al-Qaeda and so on. Um, Now, of course, this entire discourse of foreign fighters is uh, coming out of the mouths of um, a very, very large invading army that is also not Iraqi, right? So This idea of who gets to call who foreign and who gets to simply speak in the name of the universal um, was sort of one of the early um, uh, sort of puzzles that was kind of motivating the book. Um, So the way that I tried to rethink this whole discourse around foreign fighters and jihadism is that if we start with nation states as kind of the baseline units for thinking about this stuff, um, the typical approach then is to say, okay, well, let's look at all these people, let's figure out what countries they come from, make a list and you know how many of them are producing more fighters per capita and what are the variables that we can correlate with that. And presto, we have you know basically 80% of the books written about transnational jihad, which really don't tell us very much. Um, I kind of figured out after hanging out with some of these people and talking to them, that although their national origin is uh, a very important part of the story, I became less interested in where they came from and assigning them to a particular national category and instead started thinking about how they arrived Um, because many of the folks who fought in Bosnia um, were not um, conforming to this stereotypical idea of Muslim in home country A sees images of mass atrocities happening in Muslim country B and then jumps on a plane and goes over there. Um, which is an image that both the kind of, um, war and terror imagination, but also some of the supporters of these jihad movements like to celebrate, right? So the idea of heroism, um, that's not grounded in firsthand knowledge as well as fanaticism are kind of, uh, mirrored images of each other here. Um, what I found that a lot was that a lot of folks who were fighting in Bosnia were already diasporic. Um, the largest segment arguably were migrant workers in Italy and other parts of Western Europe. Um, so a lot of these folks were actually moving through different types of mobility over the course of their lives. So not only were they mujahideen or jihad fighters, they were also migrant workers. They were students. They were pilgrims. They were refugees. They traveled in search of knowledge, in search of adventure. And for them, uh, the process of, um, of becoming involved in, in combat um, was often an accidental one, right? Sometimes they traveled to Bosnia with the idea that they would do humanitarian aid, but then for various reasons, picking up guns seemed to make more sense, right? Or vice versa. There were those who went thinking that they would fight and they got disillusioned and decided to focus on proselytization instead or humanitarian aid. Um, so when you situate fighting in a broad spectrum of other kinds of solidarity activity and then situate that in a broad spectrum of other kinds of travel, then um, fighting doesn't stand out as this totally unique and scary or unique and heroic type of activity that is separate from others, right? It's part of the spectrum of other things. And it just helps us historicize um, these folks in a way that's very different from the prevailing sort of framework, which is, again, as I mentioned, sort of, you know, thinking in terms of nation states and trying to figure out why people from country A are going to fight in country B
0: uh thank you Daryl uh, you know in relationship to we we both uh, Nancy and I had the kind of questions we've been asking you and in your response so this sort uh, this transnational mobility uh for several purposes is key to um key to the kinds of mobilities that you're interested in, some of which get uh, incorporated into jihadism so the one question that I had in relationship to understanding those and the way which you um, demonstrate for us is the work of memory. I, I would like to draw, you know, the audience's attention to the first chapter and uh, the one way in which a lot of the way I read the book uh, was shaped by what you call the portrait of the Mujahid as an old man, where you're talking about Abu Abdul Aziz in uh, in Jeddah when you meet him in Jeddah in 2014. And how he and several other of your respondents uh recollect um the stories of these movements, the stories of arriving somewhere for different reasons, uh and then sort of you know getting getting involved in whether it's education or charity or humanitarian aid or a war. So I wanted to know from you as a as a as a lawyer and as a as a ethnographic historian if you can use that word. What did the work of this memory mean for you while you were uh, documenting these narratives and then making sense of them? Because the project in sense is what you say is also uh, ethnographic history from the bottom up, right? So it's not only about the big wars and the decisions and the high level committees and and the kinds of propaganda that all of these involve, but the stories of the people who were moving around, uh, whether or not, um, you know, Purposely, uh, part of these movements. So I wanted you to reflect a little bit on on, on working with memory as as uh, as a project almost to reshape these narratives with uh, with the idea of universalism in your mind.
2: Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I'm not entirely sure if I have a sort of comprehensive answer to that. Um, I think what I would say is that. Uh, Talking to the books was um, absolutely crucial to, to, to making the book possible. But the book is also um, uh, anchored in a range of archival sources. Um, the most important being um, documents of the Bosnian army that were gathered by the UN War Crimes Tribunal. Um, but there are others as well, um, a series of wiretaps, for example... That were made by the italian secret police um, on a, a mosque in islamic center in milan that was organizing a lot of support for the jihad and uh much of the crafting of the book was really about um aligning and reading against each other both um the, the memory work that came out in, in the interviews and also in the um, in the archival sources right and there are a few moments in the book where there's just a flat contradiction between the two. And I sort of just try to, you know, put it out there for the reader to decide um, what they think. Um, and the, a part of this also uh, is influenced by my own um, background in, in legal training as well, too, because we have as, as attorneys, especially attorneys in trial practice, have um, have their own kind of um, mentality in in the handling of documents and how documents are presented to witnesses um who are testifying right in the way that um that documentary evidence and and sort of uh oral testimony sometimes are mutually reinforcing sometimes they are in tension with each other sometimes they contradict each other um so for me um the memory work of the, uh, of, the of the ethnographic encounter as well as the um the the documents are sort of constantly being um marshalled with each other in ways that you know were sometimes more comfortable and sometimes uh, less comfortable Uh, part of this was necessity right this is not um a participant observation ethnography of an armed jihad uh the the jihad in bosnia ended you know um, i think when i was in high school um and i haven't uh had the opportunity to be sort of following around you know fighters on the live battlefield and in other situations and that's not something i'm particularly interested in doing. So, part of it is about necessity, but part of it is also that the passage of time um, also creates different possibilities for people to speak. So, I started this research in 2006, barely a decade after the war. And at that time, it was very difficult for people to speak. Um, Not only was the war recent, but it was also, you know, kind of the, the most intense period of the war on terror. There was uh, fears of you know, being abducted and sent to Guantanamo or CIA black sites and so on. But over the course of the research, um, over the following 10, 15 years, uh, there, I noticed um, very significant changes in terms of people's willingness to speak. So the passage of time and the distance um, that that entailed also created new um, possibilities for for interview connections to happen for narratives to emerge and of course you know there's also other risks that come with distance with with temporal distance from the events in question right so that you have all the classic questions about you know oral histories and their and their reliability and so on and of course i you know i did my best to you know check you know claims factual claims against other kinds of sources and so on um but yeah this i think that the temporality of the interviews of the memory work so for a lot of these folks it wasn't just them telling me their memories in one sitting, right? It was a series of conversations over a number of years where they would sometimes re-narrate or remember the same incident different times, right? And it would come out in different ways. It would, um, in different instances, different things would be emphasized. And, um, I, I think in, in a way that's part of what made ethnography potentially different from journalism and even potentially different from other kinds of history, right? Um, that I was trying to follow kind of the temporal unfolding of these narratives as well, uh, which, you know, can have all sorts of um, interesting effects, right? Because I was also keen to see how these folks were re-narrating their experiences in light of what they were going through at that moment. So a lot of the folks I was interviewing were um, either in an immigration detention center or they were under threat of deportation or under threat of having their citizenship taken away. They were worried about being taken from their families, being sent to places where they'd be tortured. Um, So that context also was important to keep in mind in understanding how these narratives were crafted.
1: Daryl, thank you. That kind of brings me to two questions um, that maybe go in different directions, so I apologize for spreading you out a little bit there. But um, the one is the role of historical nostalgia in a sense um, in the people that you spoke to. Um, I remember reading about Muhsin um, evoking the idea of the Ottoman Empire and socialist Yugoslavia and here I guess he's, he sort of um, maps over the Habsburg takeover of of, of Ottoman Bosnia Herzegovina but still he's, he says that the Ottoman Empire and socialist Yugoslavia were examples of just and competent rule in Bosnia In 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 sort of contrast to Um, the sort of identitarian turn where Yugoslavs came to see themselves as primarily as Serbs and Croats and Bosnians. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that particular history um, and the role of nostalgia in that, um, in in encouraging certain kinds of uh, universalist practices, and not just the ones that would fall under the umbrella of what we consider jihadism, um, but others as well that you talk about in your book. Um, But the second question is that it seems that this book is also in a way, um, a history of the racialization of Muslims and that there's something about the particular history of, um, of, of jihad and solidarity um, in the Bosnian uh, context that can tell us something about how and why, Um, a a very heterogeneous, uh, almost meaningfully multivalent thing called Islam uh, could become racialized in a global context. Um, And you bring up this term a number of times in the book, global hierarchies of race. Uh, So I was wondering if you could talk about them and how the particular and the global
0: um, uh, play out.
2: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, So... uh, I guess it's, um, I should probably say a few things about the context of the, of the book for those who are not familiar, right? So um, there is, uh, there's kind of this very, okay, so most of what's been written about ex-Yugoslavia uh, since the country came apart and since the wars of the 1990s is about trying to explain the so-called resurgence of national nationalist identities, right? So as you put it, how is it that Yugoslavs or Bosnians came to identify themselves first and foremost as Serbs, Croats, and Muslims slash Bosniaks? And those terms, for the purposes of this discussion, will treat as synonymous, but there's actually a much richer conversation to be had there. Um, Now, what's interesting is that I think um, it's fair to say that since the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you have, on the one hand, the continued relevance, if not primacy, of nationalist categories as the way of organizing politics. And that's partially because the constitutional structure of Bosnia, which was um, basically uh, handed down by the American negotiators who brokered the peace treaty at the end of the war, um, led by um, by Richard Holbrook, Um, that this constitutional structure essentially um, enshrines and perpetuates nationalist divisions, right? So in the constitution, um, you know, Bosniaks and Croats and Serbs are categories for things like reserving seats in the presidency or in the parliament. Um, So for those who are familiar with the Lebanese context, I would say it's uh, it's worse in this sense, because in the Lebanese context, um, part of the sectarian division of the government is a sort of um, understanding that isn't necessarily formalized constitutionally. In Bosnia, it is formalized. And not only that, um, it's formalized in an extremely complex, labyrinthine way. So, you know, there's a joke. This is this is one state. That's composed of two entities that has three presidents and I think something like four prime ministers. I can't even keep track. Um, and you know, a lot of this is basically about um, dividing the spoils of the state along nationalist lines, which therefore incentivizes a certain kind of politics. And there's been lots of stuff written about this that's been critiquing the system. So you have the ongoing relevance of nationalism on the one hand. On the other hand, a very, very deep and widespread um, disillusionment and cynicism with nationalist politicians, nationalist politics, and nationalist categories as well. Um, so there's always been this ongoing debate over, you know, to what extent does nationalism as a category really explain what's going on? Um, and part of, well, one of the things that coexists with the suspicion of nationalism is this phenomenon of Yugo, style, Yugo nostalgia, or actually just Yugo nostalgia, right? So there's this sense that, you know, in Yugoslavia, the country was, you know, more prosperous. It was more cosmopolitan. Because of Yugoslavia's status in the non-aligned movement, um, Yugoslavs could travel with their sort of iconic red passport, the Pasosh, um, Pasoš, to both the Western Bloc and Eastern Bloc. So it's entirely possible for people to be both kind of nationalist and also have nostalgia for Yugoslavia at the same time. Um, so I think that's sort of a general sort of uh, snapshot of the context. What's interesting is that the Bosnia, the Bosniaks or Bosnian Muslims that I spoke to who had fought in the jihad, um, are not really that different from other folks in the country on these scores. So while uh, one might assume that their commitment to a certain kind of transnational Islam um, puts them in a totally different space, uh, that's not entirely true. There's actually quite a bit of political diversity um, among the Bosnian veterans of the jihad that I knew. Some were supporters of the of the SDA, the main sort of Bosniak nationalist party. Some were more socialist in their inclination. Um, they all had different sort of takes on Yugoslavia's socialist legacy. Um, so for them, and I think part part of the, the takeaway of this is that um, uh, groups and individuals are often engaged with different ways of thinking about the universal at once, right? And it's entirely possible for uh, the same person to, at different points in their life, or even at the same point in their life, to be thinking in Different universalist terms at the same time. Um, so for some of these folks, you know, they can they could um, valorize the Yugoslav project while at the same time believing that transnational solidarity among Muslims um, in wartime situations is justified, um, which actually makes sense because even socialist Yugoslavia had its own uh, version of pan-Islamist politics, right? So as part of their own outreach to the so-called Muslim world, they were also um, mobilizing clerics and and engaging in these kinds of discourses. So, um, And all of this is is important to keep in mind because there's still a tendency to think of universalism in terms of these big categories and big ideas that kind of get downloaded into local contexts. Whereas I'm really trying to understand how folks are working with these different categories and sometimes mixing and matching them and subverting them for their own purposes um, in the context of stuff that they're actually trying to get done, whether it's to, you know, win a war or, you know, put together a decent um, life for themselves in a country whose economy is basically falling apart.
1: So on that line, I wonder, the, the conclusion- I Oh, can- I totally didn't answer your
2: second question. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. sorry.
1: Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. no. Go ahead. <laughs> well, actually came away from the book feeling more ambivalent than ever about the analytic usefulness of the term jihad because it struck me that the main purpose of of if we're honest of the term jihad when we use it in public discourse is to obscure the ways in which or even legitimize the ways in which states use violence against uh, its subjects or against other sort of uh, uh, um, other subjects right and that jihad is a really only differentiates what we deem as legitimate violence from what we deem as illegitimate violence. So given the diversity of different kinds of, you know, projects, as you say, that were part of jihad, um, what did you find was useful about using that word um, in, in your book?
2: Um, thank you. That's really helpful. And that actually helps me get back to your, uh, to your other question that I didn't answer. Um, look, I think believers um, can talk about jihad and have debates over what counts as a proper jihad or not. And these debates might be anchored in kind of the juristic traditions of fiqh, or they might not be. And those traditions are, you know, they're rich and they're diverse and they're ongoing. I think it's precisely because those debates um, are so far flung that an analytical category, um, according to, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of secular social science, called jihadism uh, doesn't make any sense. is not useful, and I... Uh, I reject it. Um, You know, it's not just, as you said, that, you know, this term jihad gets thrown around, to delegitimize certain kinds of non-state violence. It's also that states have and do and will continue to also uh, occasionally talk about their own violence as jihad, right? So during the Iran-Iraq war, for example, um, you know, this was part of the state discourse to talk about, you know, the war as jihad. So, I think, from a you know, for non-believer social scientist types, you know, we can think of jihad as just a claim that Muslims might make that certain kinds of struggle are are religiously um, justified and and grounded. Um, but how to turn that into a kind of category for analysis, especially one called jihadism, um, you know, that's a question that frankly confounds me. And um, yeah, so I don't, you know, this is not a book about jihad as a category, let alone about jihadism, right? It's about a particular armed campaign whose participants called jihad and that has you know, uh, more than passing family resemblance to other campaigns in places like Chechnya, Kashmir, and so on. So I'm not saying this is a totally unique case that has no analytical value. But I certainly um, uh, don't want to suggest and actually actively push against the idea that we can talk about jihad as just a sort of abstract category that's floating around in the world. Um and and this actually gets back to your question about um sort of the racialization of Islam, right? Because you know, this uh you know, the 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 way that jihad kind of turns into this abstract floating term that non-Muslims in particular, you know, can invoke as something scary and threatening is of course a major component of um, broader uh, sort of moves to kind of uh, racialize uh, Muslims as a kind of global category. And, you know, this is something that a lot of scholars have written about um, critically in the context of the war on terror and other forms of anti-Muslim state violence. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, there is a kind of process of um, turning Muslims into a sort of racialized category that, you uh, is abstracted from uh, local or geographical specificity and that is deep threatening. Um, and that, you know, there are many people who are racialized as a Muslim who don't even necessarily identify as Muslim, right? So Sikhs, um, uh, black folks who are not Muslim, for example, you know, these are all people who can be and are victims of anti-Muslim violence um, from time to time. Um, so that's one axis of racialization that the book uh, discusses. And of course, you know, is something that a lot of folks discuss the other axis of racialization, though, that's also important to keep in mind is that race is a category that continues to operate, uh, between Muslims as well, right? So, you know, Islam is, you know, as, as many people will point out, you know, Islam is, is not a race, obviously, right? So you have, um, racial difference and racism and racial hierarchy among Muslims. And this is one of the things that the folks I'm writing about, um, were contending with in, in their, in their work right so there was within the jihad this context of you know trying to transcend racial difference which of course in practice ends up being you know fraught in more ways than one uh the most interesting uh way i think was in the um in the question of marriage so there were um arabs um who are both some were fighting in the jihad some were coming to do aid work who um married bosnian women and there was a sort of um racialized exoticisms. i was kind of running in both directions right both the fascination with um bosnian women as sort of white muslims and also a fascination with sort of you know um strangers you know sort of dark handsome strangers from the middle east if you will um so i think it's interesting to look at how these two different kinds of racialization are kind of intersecting with each other right racism exists and continues to be transformed kind of between muslims and also the broader uh, logics of racialization that are kind of being driven by the war on terror. Um, And Bosnia is a particularly interesting case for this, right? Because it's, you know, this discourse of Bosnia as, you know, the meeting point of different civilizations, you know, kind of plays on this idea that like a predominantly Muslim white European country is somehow a contradiction that needs to be explained away or something that has to have a certain value attached to it. So for uh, liberal humanitarians in the West, uh, saving Bosnian Muslims was a sort of test of the cosmopolitan virtues of the West, right? It was a way for the West to kind of, you know, put its money where its mouth is in terms of humanitarianism, diversity, and talk, and so on. Um, And then for different audiences of the Muslim world, there's a fascination with Bosnia, and specifically with the whiteness of Bosnia, as um, a sign of... Kind of the, the multiracial scope enhanced the univers the universality or potential universality of Islam. So this exoticization of Bosnia from multiple directions uh, played out in the different kinds of projects that are you know that I talked about in the book, uh, both the sort of uh, jihad mobilization and also in the better known kind of um, Western liberal humanitarian uh, types of projects.
1: Thank you so much for that. That kind of reminds me, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the influence of work, for example, by Ang Seng Ho on thinking through the, the lens of the diaspora in trying to understand these um, transnational and seemingly contradictory um, connections.
2: Yeah, so Ang Seng was my doctoral advisor and uh, he has uh, an article that appeared in Comparative Studies in Society History, 2004, called uh, The View, Empire Through Diasporic Eyes, The View from the Other Boat. And uh, what he essentially does in that article is to um, remind or educate readers that Osama bin Laden um, is not just uh, a Saudi, right? He's, he should not be read purely through his uh, citizenship or, or former citizenship categories, but he's also um, ancestrally from the Hadramaut region of Yemen and that the Hadrami diaspora has this very long history across the Indian Ocean, um, whereby Hutterite um, scholars, in particular, would travel and settle in different societies around the Indian Ocean rim, oftentimes intermarrying with local populations, and through a combination of kinship, and mobility, and the authority of religious scholarship, um, that these things, these resources, um, enabled them to play a disproportionately Visible role in mobilizing different kinds of uh, armed pushback against Portuguese and other Western expansion um, in the Indian Ocean area. So uh, Einstein's work in this regard was, you know, very helpful for me and really shaped a lot of my early thinking about sort of injecting diaspora as a kind of um, category that was between sort of uh, the scale of the nation-state and the more abstract. Uh, scale of the global globalization or even of empire. Um, so, uh, so the first chapter in particular, um, this character, Abu aziz who Bumika mentioned earlier, um, is also part of the, the Hadani diaspora. Um, he was born in, in Hyderabad, um, in southern India. And again, there's a sort of, you know, like I'm, I'm very much indebted to Ng analysis of sort of, um, you know, having a diasporic framework in which to, to ground someone like Abu aziz so instead of the typical view, because he's written about a fair bit in the secondary literature, he's usually just described as a, as a Saudi. Um, and part of what the book does is to show that, that, that label is, you know, is, is actually really impoverished, right? That this is a person whose family traveled from Hyderabad to Hyderabad, and then he moved from Hyderabad to the Hejaz. He speaks Urdu and Arabic and English. And he, you know, for him, the Indian Ocean is just kind of his, his, his family lake in a way. And it's, Unsurprising that someone like him is one of the first folks to land in Bosnia to fight there because he also spent his career in, uh, in Saudi Airlines as a, as a sort of um, bureaucrat. And he, you know, he's widely traveled, quite cosmopolitan, but not in that sort of super elite, uh, westernized uh, kind of way that one might expect. Um, so in many ways, he is a, a good example of you know these different kinds of mobile and diasporic networks um, that are not necessarily the most uh, expected ones. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think that was sort of, um, you know, one of the important, um, analytical building blocks for kind of getting the argument going. Um, there's a bit of an interesting, uh, uh, sort of back and forth between diaspora as a category and sort of universalism, um, in, in the book. And this is something that I think and I have discussed, um, extensively over the years. And, you know, I think, I think for him, there's something a little bit, um, potentially too abstract about universalism. Um, and, you know, I I understand that critique because for me, diaspora kind of does a certain kind of work at the level of social analysis, right? Of like historicizing actual social ties and movements. Um, universalism is a category for me to think about political projects and alignments um, and how it is that empirical differences in culture and society and whatever actually get you know, like, what do we do with them in the service of a political project, especially one um, involving violence, right? So because cultural difference and culture, you know, are, for me, they're sort of politically inert, right? They're not necessarily good or bad, or they don't necessarily go this way or that way. It's just like, for example, you know, like, Salafism as a so-called sect of Islam, there's nothing about it inherently that leads you to think about violence in one way or the other. Uh, not just violent versus non-violent, but even among Salafis who engage in violence than College had, there's huge differences in terms of how they think about it. Um, so for me, universalism is kind of a necessary um, additional analytical layer for thinking about how you can pull together people from really different backgrounds and really different contexts into a common project. Um, and this is important because I think a lot of the um anthropology of islam that's been that's been very influential for me and for many scholars um and you know sort of in the post 9 11 era has dealt with categories like piety but hasn't necessarily known how to translate them into a political outcome right so i'm thinking for example of Salah wood's work where um the the political uh payoff of the kind of forms of piety that she's looking at is is underdetermined and it's actually necessarily underdetermined i think it's an important part of her contribution to show that piety movements can exist and people from those backgrounds can end up having quite different attitudes towards questions of the state state power violence and so on right so what we need then is just another way of thinking about politics that goes on top of it and that's something that i think. Um, uh, anthropology, especially sort of prestige anthropology in the United States, um, needs to do a better job with, right? Because I think in many ways, we're still um, often trapped in a kind of um, compulsive white liberalism and how we think about a lot of these political questions, right? Like a lot of the critiques, as it's also true in Middle Eastern studies as well, to a large extent, where, you know, um, a lot of the critique has just been uh, about anti-essentialism, right? Sort of pushing back against racist stereotyping of Muslims. Which I completely, you know, agree with and share, right? But there's something about that um, move, which is about exposing the inconsistencies and hypocrisies of dominant projects, which is um, actually inadequate um, in the current moment that we're living in, right? That we're just both within the academy and outside the academy in need of imagining much stronger alternatives um, and and kind of pushing ourselves beyond um, some of our more comfortable modes of critique where which are also you know limited as important
0: as they might have been um, daryl i would, so, I, would yeah. I would like to come in there actually uh, in the, to what we were just saying um and to the limitations of um anti essentialism as an anthropological insight and i would like to draw um the attention of our audience to the fact that so the book of course you know takes on universalism in various aspects and uh, the final chapter which is about the global war on terror and as you very sort of you know um, eloquently put it this is sort of the most presentist moment of the kind of universalism that you've been tracing throughout the book and I I want to sort of invite you to speak more about the category of sovereignty that you also bring in um, in your analysis of sort of mediating between uh, universalism and sort of different kinds of sort of universalist projects and I'd I'd like to quote you on page 196 where you say that sovereignty is not the domination that the United States asserts over the world, it is rather the legal logic that channels, organizes and legitimizes the domination through the agency of other states that are supposed to be independent and equal. And sort of, you know, these few sentences you capture a lot and I was wondering whether you had something to say about uh, your own position as a lawyer uh, and this practice of ethnographic lawyering that you sort of start out with uh, while defining your uh, methodological corpus for the book and the limitations and possibilities of that method and how even approaching that in the presentist moment when you do your sort of not just ethnographic lawyering, but lawyering of people in detention for various sort of uh uh various sort of crimes that a state decides, a sovereign state decides for itself, but across uh boundaries of sovereignty. So if you could speak a little bit about this position of ethnographic lawyering and lawyering and the logics of sovereignty that all operate in the project of universalism as you kind of define it for us and where that has taken you and can possibly take uh, more of sort of analytical anthropology towards?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for that question. Um, so this point about sovereignty is one that um, I expand on at greater length in, um, in a chapter in an edited volume on ethnographies of the U.S. Empire. Um, an article is called From Exception to Empire. Um, if anyone is interested in checking it out. But the, the basic idea here is that uh post 9 eleven, especially um as the work of folks like Georgia Agamben um uh, become fashionable in anthropology and in other fields, there's been this resurgence of interest in this category of sovereignty. And to my mind, too often sovereignty has been basically treated as a as a synonym for authority, um, and most commonly as uh talking about state authority when we think like authority too much right um and then you know then of course people will you know because the discipline rewards the the, um, the coining of neologisms that are catchy but also vague enough to be appropriated for different purposes um you know that we have you know different prefixes that we attach to the word sovereignty right so you know whatever um and for me just sort of stepping back um i came to the idea that you know, what was interesting about sovereignty wasn't its domestic understanding as top-down power, you know, that the state exercises over people in mm-hmm. territory, but um, sovereignty as an international category, right, as this idea that, hey, all the states in the world are supposed to be equal on paper, and they can't push each other around, and, you know, unfortunately, some states... Hide behind their sovereignty to abuse their citizens, right? So when I worked in kind of the um in sort of the white human rights NGO world, um that was sort of the the typical line on sovereignty that I encountered. And, you know, while that critique certainly is truly has a lot of force behind it, um, it's also important to keep in mind that sovereignty is a way for some states to essentially wash their hands of responsibility for things that they do outside of their own borders, right? So, you know, if we think about, for example, um, you know, the classic problem of sovereign debt, right? Or we have governments that, you know, are are pressured to do things by more powerful states in um, harming their own citizens. Um, and in terms of formal international law, because these are sovereign states, you know, they're the ones that are responsible, right? They've abused their own citizens and, and they've committed human rights violations and that's bad. But the role of um countries like the United States in making that happen through various kinds of pressure, both inflicted and explicit, is frequently overlooked or here. Um so that's sort of what I was trying to say in um in that line from the book that you that you reminded me of. And that emerges directly from my um experiences as an attorney because you know, so much of litigation is done um, in the context of state law and national courts. So in the um, lawyering around the war on terror, around Guantanamo, for example, um, or the detention program, there's always this question of jurisdiction, right? How, how far can the jurisdiction of the courts reach in, um, in, in determining the fates of prisoners? And that was an immensely frustrating process because basically what the U.S. was doing is, it was creating a global network of detention sites um, Guantanamo is like the most egregious part of this, but it's also, for that very reason, kind of misleading to focus so much on Guantanamo. There's this whole um, archipelago of other prisons, some that are directly run by the U.S., some that are run by other countries, some that are run by non-state actors, and the U.S. can sort of move prisoners between them um, for its purposes. And one of the reasons why this network exists in the way that it does Is precisely to evade the jurisdiction of U.S. courts, right? Um, If if we're not holding someone, and if we take someone out of a prison that's run by the U.S. military and put them in a prison that's run by the Jordanians, then it's going to be much harder for a U.S. court to say that they should have any, you know, that they should that they should intervene in the matter, right? So that's sort of, you know, so when when you lawyer, when you're trying to to oppose the war on terror inside a U.S. federal courtroom. You, you begin to realize or you should realize that you're able to only attack a very, very, very small part of the larger picture. And even then, you're not really allowed to do so effectively anyway. Um, so for me, ethnographic lawyering, is, as it were, um, made clear to me the, the immense limitations on uh, the traditional forms of kind of liberal legal advocacy in the context of a national empire that was oftentimes hiding behind and, and appropriating the
1: sovereignty of Daryl, thank you. To connect that with the point that you were making earlier, this question um, of whether universalism is too broad of a category, I actually wonder if perhaps universalism isn't broad of a category enough um, because your comments on sovereignty reminded me of um, an, another article that came out in Comparative Studies of Society and History um, by the anthropologist Andrew Knessa. Um, he was just distinguishing between different types and discourses of indigeneity. And he says that if we, instead of asking whether these subjects are authentically indigenous or not, in a similar way as you're asking, you know, you're saying rather than focusing on whether or not these subjects are genuinely jihadist or genuinely Muslim and so on and so forth, um, we should ask about what these practices of claiming indigeneity do. And he looks at these claims to indigeneity as a claim to justice and it strikes me that that's very much the case as well for the people that you have been talking with for the past 15 years, that their claim to universalism is at its root a claim to justice and a, a claim to recognize certain forms of injustice. Um, and there's nothing about that claim that necessarily leads to universalist projects. They can also lead to particularist, pro- particularist projects such as that of you know indigenous nationalism in Bolivia, for instance, right? So I was wondering, in that sense, whether you see um, your role and the Academy's role, ideally, um, in forging a a new kind of solidarity and one that doesn't just beg on these sorts of analytically weak claims to go against this essentialism um, or to insist on nonviolence, whether you see the role of the scholar there as actually um, also being an actor claiming making claims to justice or injustice
2: yeah thanks for that um so i'm not familiar with the article that you mentioned but i um i guess i want to um i I, there's just something that you've said about kind of the the way that you were characterizing the project that i'd like to put an asterisk next to um which is that i i'm not saying that we shouldn't care about the validity of universalist claims necessarily. Um I'm just sort of saying, you know, there's other analysis that's additional that's especially helpful when we're talking about folks who's, you know, who normally are not even associated with ideas of universal, right? I mean, like, so-called jihadists. Um, and the reason why I, I kind of put this asterisk there is because I'm personally not convinced that there is so much here For scholarship, or at least my scholarship, (laughs) um, to be doing in um, in advancing certain claims to justice. I I will say that I think you're right that a universalist project is a claim to justice, but it's a claim to justice of a particular kind, right? And it's about sort of by what kinds of standards and in the name of what kind of community or configuration of humanity is a claim to justice being made, right? So it's um, it's about defining the criteria that allow of justice or injustice to be made, as much as it is, you know, an actual justice. And it's interesting that you bring, bring up indigenous sovereignty projects, because it's not, um, I'm not sure if I would even necessarily say that they are not universalist. Um, I, I'm i kind of, I mean, my, my sense is that almost any identity project, insofar as it imagines or is modeled on or envisions a connection to set of ideas that's supposed to be directed at everyone is universalist right that's why i don't um as you know sort of you know talk about nationalism and universalism as as kind of mutually opposed right that you know every that oftentimes nationalist projects are are speaking different to different universalisms at once and this is definitely the case for the bosnian nationalist project um and you know I think that's that's potentially very true as well about indigenous sovereignty projects. It's just not something I, I've you know necessarily thought about as as much as I should um, but in terms of you know what the role of the scholar is for justice i mean i I actually you know this um, there's a reason why the book um, theorizes universalism much more than it theorizes solidarity, which is one of the other keywords in the subtitle um it's not that I don't think Um, There's interesting scholarly work to be done around solidarity and about it. But I think for the purposes of what I was trying to do, you know, there was an analytical intervention around universalism that has some kind of connection to or encouragement to thinking about solidarity. But for me, the thinking about solidarity that I want to do or that I want to encourage is more um, a praxis-oriented one, right? So I think there's a way in which scholars who also are... See themselves politically situated, um, we need to think about, um, the limitations or, or about delineating where the scholarly work kind of ends and where the political work sort of begins. I mean, obviously they're, you know, they're connected and they overlap and they influence each other. But I'm, I'm very, very suspicious or I'm very wary of folks who believe that the scholarly intervention is in itself the political intervention and does all of the work of the political intervention. I think that's a trap that we often um fall into um sort of you know among um right you know category that I sort of include myself in for better or for worse. Um so I think there's you know there's something that's important there to interrogate about um the point at which you know I kind of don't necessarily need my book um to make certain kinds of political arguments or to engage in certain kinds of political um situations.
0: Great, thanks, Tara. I mean, the, the last bit that you said in response to Nancy's question, um, which is to say that a, sort of raising a political question by itself or contributing to some kind of scholarly body is not the end of the work. And I wanted to ask you two things about the book cover, if you can do that. Uh, I should tell the audience that um, uh, if you're going to judge a book by its book cover, then this is a great book. Um, and having said <laughs> that, I wanted to ask you one about the title of the book itself as well. And I I see that it's called Universal Enemy and there is sort of no mention of universalism in either the title or the subtitle. And uh, it's called Jihad Empire and the Challenge of Solidarity. So I was wondering if you did take um, some kind of sort of, you know, if you bargained between universalism and the universal enemy, or solidarity and not universalism. So I wanted you to speak to that a little bit because as we all know, titles are, so crucial to any kind of scholarly imagination. And the second uh, question I had or um, comment I had about the, t- uh, the cover is is just is the, the intriguing artwork on the cover, if I understand, by Omar Khoury. Um, and if you could just speak to the significance of the miracle on the cover to the larger project, uh, uh, what they were speaking about, solidarities, universalisms, are are just a universal imagination itself.
2: Uh yeah, thanks for that. Um so the question about title, that's that's funny. And you know, this is one of those um uh behind the curtain type moments, right? Because yes, I did struggle with the title and the the term universalism was used in a lot of the earlier iterations, and um you know they just weren't that satisfying <laughs> um, and uh the this this title universal enemy actually i I used it originally in an article that I wrote um, quite a few years ago, and I had no intention of kind of returning to it but um uh, after attempts many different attempts um many different titles that none of which really seemed to work, it just felt as if um universal enemy was um, catchier, but I agree that there's this um you know, that there's a little bit of a, I don't know if I would say a bait and switch, but there's a slippage at least, right? Where, you know, the book opens up by talking about this category of the universal enemy, but as an entree to talking about universalism and really the book is about universalism, right? Um, so, you know, there is a danger that people might not read past page three and kind of, you know, use this term universal enemy as a way of kind of driving their their thinking about the entire book. And um, that would be unfortunate. Um, and, you know, but it's also, I guess, a risk that I took on in, in choosing the title that I did. Uh, so, I guess is this, is, this is sorry,
0: that is why we have the podcast because it's not about universal enemies, it's about universal. So,
2: <laughs> exactly. So, anyone who is re- who is listening to this podcast, please read past page three. Um, if you you, know, you can click after page five, I won't hold it against you, but at least get past page three. Um, and as far as the, the cover of the book, um, so it, uh it depicts um an event during the jihad which is that um there's a story that's going that that went around that uh during a, a battle between <clears throat> between the uh the jihad fighters and the bosnian serb forces during which the um the mujahideen anticipated very very heavy losses and casualties um because the serbs had the high ground and because they had these um, these very large sort of artillery weapons that um, when the battle started, inexplicably, the Serb forces pointed their guns into the sky instead and started shooting. And that gave the, the Bosnian Muslim and, and Arab forces an opportunity to quickly capture the Serbs and kind of overrun them. And the, the, after the battle, the, the Serb prisoners said that the reason why they fired their guns into the sky instead of at their the opposing forces was that they saw um, horsemen clad in white who are charging at them from the sky. And um, as anyone who is familiar with kind of early uh, Islamic history will know, this um, this this resonates with um, accounts of one of the um, the early battles in the history of Islam, which is often spoken of as a miracle, um, an intervention by uh, by angels on um, the side of the Muslims. So this is a, a trope that you know recurred in, in, in the Bosnian context, and there are other miracle tropes that show up in places like Afghanistan and so on. There's a very rich sort of, uh, uh, sort of literature about this, um, among, uh, participants in, in jihad. And, um, so for me, the reason why I, um, I chose it, uh, as, as the inspiration for the cover is that, um, you know, this was all, this was also a battle where, um, uh, NATO was, um, bombing um, on the side of the Bosnian Muslims at the same time. Um, Not necessarily in this battle, but they were conducting a campaign and they were bombing the Bosnian Serb forces. And of course, uh, Croatian forces supported by the U.S. were engaged in mass ethnic cleansing of ethnic Serbs from parts of Croatia. And uh, so this is this key moment um, really at the climax of the war where um, all of these different kinds of intervention are sort of coming together, right? Sort of NATO um the u n is there, but then also the sort of divine intervention, as spoken about by the participants in the jihad, which for them is something that is above and beyond and more powerful even than you know than the jets of of the North Atlantic alliance. Um, so um for me, it just felt like an appropriate um moment to uh to sort of think with in um in, in putting the the cover art together and uh, i'm I'm very indebted uh, to the artist uh, Omar Hoge for for executing this vision in a way that he did. He's immensely talented. And um, for those who have not seen the cover, um, he, he uh, had earlier done a series of images about the Lebanese Civil War that were inspired by a kind of um, Silk Road motif. Um, and I believe he had studied uh, Chinese landscape painting as well. And so when I saw those images and, and recognized that aesthetic, I, I knew immediately that that's what I wanted for my book cover. Because up until that point, I was... Concerned um, that you know so much of the as I mentioned earlier, there's huge literature on jihad, jihadism, terrorism, extremism, and so on. And the the, the visual language of the book covers is so repetitive and frankly offensive, right? I mean, you know, AK-47s, you know, men with uh, with around their faces, you know, veiled women, and so on. Um, that I, I I was dreading a choice between something that was cliche or doing something that was really PC and abstract, right? So just having, like, you know, a geometric design or something that was just as bland and indepensive as possible. So when I saw uh, Omar's um, drawings from the Lebanese Civil War, I, I, it's something just immediately clicked, right? That it was something that, it was an approach that would be unusual and distinctive and also influenced by an aesthetic tradition that I also felt resonated with my own um, background, right? And, you know, there's a whole other sort of side narrative about, you know, the, my own positionality and experiences in doing this project um, as someone who is a, is a racialized kind of Asian-American immigrant settler in the United States, kind of encountering, you know, these folks engaged in, in, um, in sort of jihad projects and sort of the confusions that resulted from that. Um, so, yeah, and so that, you know, for all of these different reasons, um, it sort of came together quite nicely in uh, the choice of the artist and his ability to, to put together such a wonderful cover image.
1: Along those lines, can you tell us a little bit more, Daryl, about your experience in the field um, and also about uh, how you arrived at your project?
2: Um, So uh, this will not come as a surprise that field work was very difficult and very slow moving. Um, The original, uh, I actually started out my dissertation wanting to write about Arabs who fought in Afghanistan in the 1980s against the Soviet Union um, with a very similar set of um, theoretical concerns and really just trying to unpack kind of the backstory of Al-Qaeda. And um, because, you know, at that time, the narrative was sort of, you know, a bunch of crazy Arabs went to Afghanistan to fight the Russians, and then after that, they they did 9-11. And, uh, you know, it was clear to me from the beginning that there was obviously a much broader diversity of projects and actors and agendas at work, and I wanted to better understand and reconstruct that. So I spent a couple of months doing research in Pakistan and uh, gathered a lot of material, had a lot of interesting conversations, but ultimately decided that the project that I wanted to do was not viable, um, partially for uh, security reasons, not just my own security, but those of the people I wanted to be talking to, because most of them were basically hiding out from uh, you know, the Pakistani army or bounty hunters or drone strikes in the uh, border areas of Pakistan. Um, and... It was around that time that I became aware of a very small population of Arab former mujahideen in Bosnia who were living openly and giving interviews. These are folks who had settled there after the war. Um, so, uh, moving to, moving the research to Bosnia, um, was just much more practical, but it also actually, you know, brought into relief even more so the bigger conceptual questions around universalism that I was interested in, um, precisely because the Balkan crises in general, and the Bosnian War in particular, were so formative um, for this generation of kind of post-Cold War American elites. Um, so all of these kind of conversations around humanitarian intervention um, are driven by folks who kind of made their career in the '90s, right? So um, Richard Holbrook, arguably, um, and people like Samantha Power as well. I mean, there's this whole, you know, group of policy types and journalists and so on who kind of, for whom the Bosnian War was a way to who um, live out a fantasy of um, of completing the promise or the redemption of American exceptionalism. Um, because the other thing about this moment in the 90s is that it's the end of the Cold War. The United States needs a way to justify its um, its military and political supremacy in the world. And it's also the time of numerous um, 50th century commemorations of the end of World War II and the end of the Holocaust The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is also opened in 1993. There's a list. The film comes out around that time. So there's this, there's this palpable sense among American elites that, um, stopping mass atrocities is the ultimate justification for American power. And, um, look, it's unfolding again, you know, it's unfolding in places like Rwanda, but we don't care because that's in Africa. But with the Balkans, you know, these, these folks are white. And, you know, when we see emaciated white people, um, you know, behind barbed wire, it resonates with American elites uh, in a way that you know might not happen in other parts of the world. So um, this doesn't necessarily translate into better outcomes for Bosnians themselves, of course, who continue to be you know victimized in so many ways by the West. But um, but this was part of the the kind of discourse that was um, developing at that time. So um, for that reason, it was fortuitous for the project to actually um, shift to Bosnia, and also because um, so soon after nine eleven. Um, you had the, one of the early cases of folks being sent to Guantanamo from a place that was far from the battlefields of Afghanistan. And, um, it was actually, uh, the, the people, the Algerians who were taken from Bosnia and sent to Guantanamo, whose case ended up in the Supreme Court, um, as kind of this landmark case around, uh, habeas corpus rights there. So Bosnia ended up being, you know, a, a, an interesting and useful, um, place from which to think about all of these different issues that were implicated.
0: So thank you so much, Daryl. This has been a fantastic conversation, I'm sure. Um, Nancy and I, you know, we both agree and uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but it was a very, very fantastic conversation. Uh, Before we let you go, however, and I know uh, this is the final question, which is, can you tell us what is it that you're working on next?
2: Oh, so... um... I am uh, I'm working on a new project on um, migrant labor across the Indian Ocean, um, with a focus on um, folks who work in the military sector, and I'm trying to rethink the category of the mercenary. Um, so in the the broad arc of the research, linking the first book to the second book, is that um, both uh, the figure of the of the mujahid and the mercenary. Um are seen as uh, threatening or problematic, um, both normatively and analytically, because of how they are not like the kind of presumed uh, default norm of the citizen soldier of a nation state army. Um, so the the volunteer or jihad fighter is someone who's seen as um, infected with you know too much ideological commitment, um too many values as it were. And the mercenary is sometimes seen as motivated purely by um, monetary gain. So they're just about, you know, value kind of in the dollar sense. And, um, you know, in both cases, I'm interested in not just challenging those narratives, but in kind of using those problems to, to think about, um, different sorts of questions, right? So in the first book, um, it's about universalism. Second book, um, I'm really interrogating ideas around sovereignty and popular democracy. Um, especially in the context of, um, of the Arab uprising and thinking about sort of race and ethnicity, um, especially in the Gulf of the Arab states, um, because this, you know, there's just enormous um, demographic transformations that have been happening in this region in recent decades that I think um, raise all sorts of interesting and important questions that we're only, you know, at the beginning of reckoning.
0: Oh, great. That sounds like a fantastic project. And we both wish you all the best for that. And hopefully there'll be another book and uh, another podcast uh, saying just that. Yes. Thank you, Daryl, so much. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, Yeah, thank you both so much. Great. Great. So bye-bye, everybody. And hope you've enjoyed this conversation today with all of us. And please go ahead and read Beyond Page 3 of The Universal Enemy. Thank you, everybody.